Okay, so um, the, you talked about how Islam or Quran can give someone a structure or value because even if the person is a good person, if they read the Quran or, you know, it will give them some level of guidance or calibration in their life to help, you know, better them. And that baffles me when I hear about Sharia law in okay. Islam. You know, and this is something that has been bugging me. I'm saying, you know, because for me as a non-Muslim, what I see is that are you really fighting for your God? You know, your God is supposed to be omnipotent, powerful God. Why can't the God choose to uh, dispense punishment if he or she so chooses? But why do you <laughs> fight? Because whenever I hear Sharia law, I hear, you know, hanging people, chopping off people's hand, you know, especially in the north of Nigeria. Can you talk about what's your views on, on Sharia law? In the Quran, there is no Sharia law, but uh, in tradition, there is Sharia law. Okay. okay. And these are the ones which are uh, used by the priests to give, hand out the punishments that uh, we're talking about earlier for adultery, for theft, for, you know, uh, other things like that as well. Okay. Uh, like the hand chopping. And see, can I, can I just make another point about this, about the hand chopping as well? Uh, there is no hand chopping in the Quran. What the Quran is talking about is a is a metaphor. Uh, when it says that uh, 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 it's just like if uh, if I said asked you to do something, you say, "Oh no, no, I'm tired today. I can't do this." That doesn't mean to say that somebody's bound you in a chair and you can't move. It just means that you're not able to do it because you've got other things to do. So the uh, in the Quran, it's about the uh, severing, not severing of the hand, but the uh, cutting of the resources of a person. So that they don't have the ability to commit any crime. That's what it means. Wow. Not the chopping of the hand. That's been changed by the hadith into the chopping of the hands, not uh, according to the Quran. So this is like the, the interpretation is very literal instead of the exactly. you know, going yeah. deeper. <laughs> exactly. They've literally interpreted instead of the metaphor it uses. It's okay. about saying that. Uh, you know, cut off the resources of this person. If a person is stealing, cut off their resources so they cannot do uh, such harm. This podcast came to be because I want to reignite discussions about Pan-Africanism. And the purpose is to plant seeds of unity and inspiration among Africans, both at home and in the diaspora. I believe we have come to the stage where our continent is more vulnerable than ever. And it's up to us to decide our fate moving forward. What we will come to realize, I hope, is that we're so much more alike than we're different. And this show is just a small contribution to the public discourse that is going on in Africa right now. My name is Soshima Iro, and this is the Pan-African Experience. On today's episode, I'm going to be having a conversation with Mr. Pengen Mustafa on the misrepresentation of religion, Islam, and the Quran. Mr. Mustafa spent his early working life in the printing and publishing industry. His company published the Tribune, the Buccaneer, City Life, and Asian Life, as well as many books for independent authors. He is the author of the book, The Quran, God's Message to Mankind. He edited and published several magazines, including Science International from 1991 to 2006, and Friday Standard from 1987 to 2001. Local Muslim clergy strongly objected to the content of these magazines because it questioned some of the religious practices that most people considered to be Islamic. This resulted in a written fatwa being issued against him in 2001 by the Glasgow Central Mosque in Scotland. 
This fatwa, which is still in place, compares him with Salman Rushdie. To date, he has not been revoked and is believed to be one of his kind in Europe. Mr. Mustafa is the director of Oxford Institute of British Islam and has written for Sunday Times, Sunday Herald and The National. He has also been interviewed by BBC Radio Scotland to comment on current affairs with regards to Islamic topics. He has been a speaker on the Open Mosque Forum and the panelist on the Henry Jackson discussion about Sharia law. Mr. Mustafa has written and published extensively about Islam from a Quran-centric perspective. I am very grateful and honored to have Mr. Mustafa on the podcast. Mr. Pegam Mustafa, welcome to the Pan-African Experience. Uh, good morning, Soshima. Thank you very much for inviting me. Okay, no, you, no problem at all. Uh, thank you for your time. Uh, you often uh, criticize or scrutinize uh, certain religious practices uh, that most people consider Islamic. And um, as a result of this, you were issued a fatwa by Glasgow Central Mosque uh, here in Scotland in 2000, uh, 2001. And I was uh, yes, wondering, right. yeah, I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about this uh, okay. fatwa. What is fatwa and the circumstances surrounding the issue of this fatwa to you? Okay, okay. Well, um, uh, before this uh, period, uh, I was publishing some uh, magazines. And in the magazines, I was uh, scrutinizing and questioning the prevalent beliefs uh, within the community, you know, regarding what the Quran says and what Muslims are actually practicing. And I found a lot of anomalies in that. And I questioned these in the magazines as part of articles and uh, also uh, asking questions about the community as well. And uh, the clergy uh, from the, uh, that area, uh, obviously they knew about the magazines because they've been going on for uh, some years. And when uh, at one point they uh, decided that they didn't like what was happening, they didn't like this questioning. So uh they issued uh, a, a written fatwa which is a decree against me to say that I, I was a heretic and i was blaspheming and so on and so on you know and they made very serious accusations against against me when they actually made this uh, i wasn't in the country i was on holiday with my wife and but a friend he faxed it over to me in those days there was no internet so it was a so he faxed it to me, and once I uh, read it and I saw how serious it was, I came over here. Uh, fortunately, um, uh, one of the national newspapers uh, took a hold of this story and they published it. And my MP uh, was very uh, sympathetic towards it. And that mitigated uh, what might have happened had my MP and the newspapers not intervened. Um, so it's. Uh, the fatwa hasn't been removed. I've uh, written several times to the mosque and uh, to uh, other people who might be able to help, but it hasn't been removed yet. So I'm still the, uh, I believe the only person, maybe in, uh, uh, well, it's definitely in, in Britain, but maybe in Europe, who has a written fatwa uh, decreed against uh, against him. Okay, so um, you wrote you wrote this book. Uh, the Quran, God's message to mankind, and uh, it was published in 2020, at least this version. Uh, no, 2016. Oh, 2016. It was published in 2016. Yes. But this took yes. you like decades, I understand, for the research before you published yes. this. 
Can you talk about this journey and uh, what prompted you to write this book? Uh, yes, well, uh, when I was publishing the magazines in uh, the late 80s and the early 90s, uh, I was getting so much material from the readers from all over the world. They were sending me lots of stuff. And uh, uh, so I decided uh, to follow some of this up, to check it, to see how uh, solid it was. And that meant I had to, I actually traveled abroad to speak to the writers and to speak to people who uh, were doing this uh, research and writing to me. And, uh, and this sort of accumulated over the years. And I had been thinking of publishing a book of some sort. And I thought to myself, there's no point in uh, publishing books because there are so many books around. Uh, the best thing would be to just look at the Quran to see whether uh, that's uh, what it's exactly saying or is it something else. So when I started researching, I found that uh, the current translations of the Quran, uh, the traditional translations of the Quran that we have, uh, there are so many uh, anomalies in it. There's so many uh, uh, misinterpretations in it. And I decided to go into it and, and do this research myself. And that took me uh, about uh, about 30 years to do that. Uh, because it's not a small task. And if I'd realized it was going to take me so long, I probably wouldn't have done it. But uh, when I started, it was so interesting. You know, I just uh, kept on. And I was collecting material all the time. And actually, it was in 2006 that I started to think about uh, uh, translating the, the Quran. Uh, but then I don't think the time was right because I didn't have enough information. I, I didn't have enough uh, research to do that. And But then I continued. Although I wasn't doing anything in public, I wasn't writing for uh, newspapers as I do now. Uh, I wasn't doing anything else. So what I did was I just, in the background, I just kept doing the research. And the first research which I did was uh, I published it as a private book, which was called uh, Zipedia Islam. is mostly a glossary of all the words in the Quran, giving their correct meanings as opposed to the traditional meanings or the ones which are normally accepted. So that took me a few years, you know, I think about four or five years to do that. And then after I had done that, uh, so in 2016, sorry, 2014, I started writing the exposition of the Quran. And that took me about two years to bring all that material that I'd collected 30 years, uh, took me 30 years to collect. So I put that all together and that's when I uh, published the, the exposition. Yeah, I find it intriguing, you know, religion is something that I've uh, looked at, you know, even from a very young age, I've had this uh, struggle with it. I was raised a Catholic, you know, in Nigeria. I grew up a Catholic. I went to mass every day, you know, I was an altar boy. And but I've always struggled with the control that religion have, you know, in, in especially in developing countries like mine, Nigeria. And that conflict between the concept of religion and Christianity, and uh, the same applies to Islam as well, religion versus Islam. And in your book, which I just uh, talked about earlier, you wrote about the difference between religion and Islam. Can you elaborate on this, please? Uh, yes, well, religion is about control, you know, because religion is often considered a binding factor, but it is in reality very, very divisive. And we can see that, uh, how facile it is, because you have one religion and then you have several sects uh, uh, spawning from it. And then from each sect, there are other smaller sects, subsects, you know. So all this is happening all the time. However, when you remove the dress code, rituals and traditions from religion, any religion, it must rely on core universal values, the very principles that bring people together, whatever their background. Religious divisions cause nothing but fear and turmoil. 
and it is uh, important to understand that religions distinguish themselves by their rituals and cultural practices, while Islam as a socio-economic system has no such impediments. The difference is that a system produces measurable results while religion cannot and was never designed to. So this in essence sets religion and Islam apart. The Quran provides the blueprint for a social and economic model that has welfare and progress of all humankind at its epicenter, a holistic solution that no religion or political structure can ever provide. So in terms of, uh, is, so it's, it's about interpretation, how people interpret Quran or how people in, uh, interpret Islam. You well, know. I, yes, well, see what you're saying is now most people believe that, but the Quran is not open to that kind of interpretation. And this is the difference between the exposition which I have done and the traditional uh, translations which are available. First of all, uh, the, uh, 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 the reason why it can't be interpreted differently because the, the Quran has certain rules which have to be followed. So in my exposition, what I have done is at the beginning, I've given these rules and what these rules are and how they operate. And that's why I say the Quran is not open to the kind of in interpretation which you're saying. But whereas people who are religious and believe in traditional translations of the Quran, they believe that one word can have several meanings. It's not possible. It's just not possible to do that if you follow the rules. And if they were to show which rules or how the, the Quran has been translated, the traditional translations would fall apart. They cannot be sustained if you apply the rules. They can only be uh, uh, believed if there are no rules that are applied. And that's the difference, you know. Wow. So, and someone that grew up uh, with religion, like we have like thousands of thousands of churches in Nigeria, for example, you know, the same with mosque, you know, more than 16,000 mosques and more than 16,000 uh, churches. And these countries are often religion dominated, uh, usually developing countries, you know, uh, abject poverty. And then that begs the question, you know, if religion is true, why are these countries or these people still in this uh, state? You know, where, where, where is the, the, the loss in translation? Okay, well, that's a lot of churches and a lot of mosques, right? Why do we need so, uh, so many uh, places of worship at all? Do we really need mosques and temples all decked with gold and silver to show that the poor and hungry how much we love God? Is that how we show uh, 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 what our um, reverence says to God? Well, what these people are actually following is rites and rituals to appease God. They're not following uh, or doing their duty to God. What the Quran says and what people practice are different things. The Quran is a practical guide and relevant to life and to progress society. It's not there for the worship of God or to appease God, because that's not what God wants. God knows what he is. God knows that he is good. So he's looking us to fulfill our duty and to fill our obligations and to fill, fill our commitments to our family, to our society, to our country, to the world. So, and, and the people, what the people are doing is they're performing these rituals uh, for personal salvation. People are following doctrines that are not based on permanent values or the core universal values. They're just interested in personal salvation and that's what they're doing. And what I think is, uh, especially from the context of uh, my country, is that because there's a lot of poverty, you know, and people are desperate, you know, and so you have all these uh, uh, spiritual churches or they, they preach uh, uh, progress, you know, you come to the church, you can have some uh, 
some progress. You can have some money, financial progress and everything. And there's a church called Synagogue in, in Nigeria. And if you see this church, uh, Mr. Mustafa, is is like gold, gold everywhere. And it's like lights, so big. And around these churches is like hot and darkness. There's no light. But at night mm. in this church is like paved with gold and light. So I'm saying to myself, if we truly believe in, in, in religion or believe in Christianity, Christianity is living a Christ-like life. And you yeah, have yeah. all these hearts surrounding you. At, at least the least the church could have done is just to give them electricity, at least. But if you see how darkness, the surroundings of the church is darkness, and then yeah, only yeah. the church is the, you know, almost like a yeah. heaven. No, no, you're absolutely right. Do you, do you think that God needs us to put a light in the church so he can see where, where he is? <laughs> we, he doesn't need that. Uh, do you think God needs all the gold decked on his church or his mosque? He doesn't need that. So uh, uh, while the people outside are homeless, starving, children are in dire need, uh, there's illness, all sorts of things are happening which shouldn't be happening outside. And there are people who are uh, just uh, taking in the gold and silver and uh, uh, using it themselves or decking to show that uh, uh, God is here. That's not uh, uh, believing in God. To believe in God means to be fair and just and have some sort of character so they can help people around you, your family, your community, your country, the world. And this is where our money should be going, not in order to be stored in uh, places like the church or the mosque or whatever, you know. Yeah, yes, and there is a lot of private jets with pastors and in Nigeria, especially a lot of private jets, and they will preach to the congregation. They will say, "Come to the altar, I'll pray for you for protection, God's protection, to protect you from your yeah, enemies." Yeah. And they now go home with like bodyguards and police escorts, armed bodyguards yeah. and police escorts, yeah. <laughs> which is very <laughs> strange. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. I, I went to visit a pastor here in uh, uh, Scotland some years ago. And uh, I had a really good chat with him. And, and I, in fact, I met him a few times, you know. And, you know, uh, and he was, uh, his, uh, uh, you know, sermons were about uh, how people should redeem themselves and so on as well. It's all about spiritual. But he actually, uh, this, uh, the car that he had, the houses that he had, and the projects that he was talking to me about costing millions of pounds, I was absolutely surprised. I said, how can this man be talking about all these things? when there is so much poverty around us, you know. He was just building up wealth for himself, basically, you know. that's That was his way of uh, saying that God is good to him, you know, yes. by using uh, the people's money for his own good. Yes, okay, there's a few uh, practices in Islamic doctrine that I would like to discuss with you, you know. These are very significant practices that most people see visually all the time. And one of these practices is the wearing of baka. And I would like you to, you know, I wanted to know what's the story and origin of Baka and whether it, this is mandated in the Quran. Uh, the the Hajj, so Baka, you're talking about the, the Baka, yes, the, yeah. the covering of the yeah. face by. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay, I understand. Well, see that the hijab is a traditional Middle Eastern headdress that did not become popular until recently when many women from other Muslim regions began to imitate their Arab sisters. They were impressed. Some thought it was trendy and others believing it to be religious decree and made something that was once cultural into a sanctified tradition. Some going even for, further wore the burqa, that's the headdress covering from the whole body for including the face. 
Uh, however, to hide the body in a tent-like gown and obscure facial features is a bizarre thing as it is cruel, especially when women are in doctrine to falsely believe it was God who decreed such a shroud for them. Nevertheless, the predominant reason has more to do with the fact that their men are insecure and harbor a deep distrust of their women. Imposing the veil or the burqa suggests that men suspect their mothers, sisters, wives, and daughters of being potential traitors. Do they really think that the women are inherently corrupt or easily seduced? How can Muslim men meet other women who are not veiled and treat them respect, uh, respectfully and not accord the same respect, treat, respectful treatment to women in their own families? Previously, there were no compulsion to wear restrictive clothing, even in Islamic countries. But now those women who do not wear it are often derided for being not Muslim enough. The wearing of the burqa and the veil are now seen as Islamic symbols, but the Quran does not say anything about wearing of either. Uh, the, uh, it stipulates only modest dress for both men and women. The hijab and the veil or the burqa are not Quranic decrees and, and they're not Islamic, but cultural and fashion statements that have root in tribal traditions of a bygone age. So whether a woman chooses to wear any one of these or not uh, is a choice, but it's not stipulated by the Quran. Well, okay, okay. So usually, um, okay, by choice. And so at the core of this is the insecurity that, you know, maybe they don't want uh, other men to see their the face of their women or, you know, there's that insecurity or lack of trust at the yeah, core yeah, of this. Yeah, lack of trust. Yeah, the men who don't trust their women, they don't. They think that they're going to be uh, traitors to them. They're going to be easily seduced. They are covering their women from head to foot, uh, head to foot, so that they uh, they can't be seen and they can't see outside. You know, it's a ridiculous situation. Okay, so another practice is, uh, I mean, the beard. You know, everyone wears big beards now. It's almost like a fashion statement. But originally, I, always, I often see like Muslims having have to grow their beards the way you have like Rastafarians grow their hair and they will not cut their hair. Mm -hmm. But I was wondering if there's a religious connotation to this beard growth or just a yeah. fashion statement. Well, beards were, as, as they are now, common in times of, uh, uh, in where cultures, there were fashions or, or shaving wasn't practical everyday event. Now we can just wake up, go up to the bathroom and have a shave, but there were times when you couldn't do that, you know. Uh, so, you know, but the thing is this, uh, uh, Traditionalists today think that uh, keeping a beard is an act of piety that earns rewards and is a label of intent for Muslims so that they can be recognized as Muslims. If this indeed was the case, then many Native Americans uh, and all the uh, Eskimos, you know, in Arctic and all the women would lose out on this virtue because they can't keep a beard. You know, there's lots of, uh, you know, uh, people that don't have beards or can't keep beards for one reason or another. So what happened to them? Are they not pious? Are they not uh, uh, good enough for anything? The Quran says that all believing men and women are equal, and it is only acts of righteousness that defines exalted characters. So if you have good conduct, then you're an exalted character. Nothing to do with the beard. So while many may uh, add, you know, the beard might add something to your image, you know, your style or, you know, the length and color of your beard, whatever it is, you know, uh, the, the, it doesn't determine your sincerity or your integrity as a Muslim. And uh, it's certainly nothing that obligation, and there's nothing in the Quran to say that. 
Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very strange how people interpret, uh, you know, uh, these religious books. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have the same issue with uh, in Christianity as well. The, the Bible has different interpretation to suit particular yeah, church, yeah. you know, depending on what they are preaching to people. And uh, but, but it, yeah, but definitely there's nothing in the Quran. Okay. And uh, in Christian doctrine, for example, you know, one of these type of practices is the tithe. So in the Islamic doctrine, I understand there's a similar thing that is called the zakat or alms giving. So I was wondering, you know, is it's been referred to as one of the pillars of Islam. Is this okay. mandated in Quran or is this another interpretation of what okay. people perceive? Okay, well, zakat is another word that's been uh, poorly interpreted again. You know, it's, uh, uh, zakat doesn't mean charity. In the Quran, uh, the word zakat is used for purity. Now, even the traditional translations occasionally translate zakat as purity, but most of the time they translate it as charity. But that's not what it means. Purity uh, is an essential condition to help individuals grow, develop, and progress. Therefore, keeping your commitments and obligations pure and uncontaminated is an important part of life because genuine sincerity cannot exist when mixed with polluted ideas. Charity is not mandated in the Quran because the Quran decrees a social welfare system that has far-reaching effects. The analogy would be to give a man a fish and feed him for a day, show him how to fish and feed him for life. So when there is natural man-made disasters in a poor country, say, rich Western countries rush to help with aid. But this destroys the economy and the people and the country. What should happen is that uh, people who are business-minded, they should be given soft loans so that they can uh, open up businesses. And people should be given basic incomes so that uh, they can buy the stuff to kickstart the economy. So what this is what's really needed is the basic minimum wage as a right to every citizen. And this is a share of the social wealth earned from natural resources, manufacturing and services from the country. Soft loans to uh, entrepreneurs and business people. This would kickstart the economy and everyone would benefit. We need a system where people need to be looked after and then dignity prevails because charity does not offer that kind of dignity which and self-respect which an earning uh, person can have. I couldn't agree with you more because I, I always say this about charity, whether it's a BBC Children in Need, where, you know, they will send someone to Uganda and then there will be a video of kids with flies all over his face and they will say, oh, this kid has to walk, you know, 10 miles to fetch a water and things like that. Yeah, exactly. And then they will now bring a mosquito net. The following year, they will come with mosquito, mosquito net. The following year, they will come yeah. with mosquito net. So there is not really an optic. There is no really an improvement. So. I, I don't support charity. I find it quite interesting that in the Quran, it, it does not promote charity because it's, that's not empowering. You know, there's no yeah. dignity in constantly trying to spoon feed someone. You know? Exactly. Now, all these things I've discussed in a lot of detail in my book, which you showed earlier. Yes. And, uh, 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 I, and it will show you that we need a proper system in place which helps everybody, people without income, people with income, people with businesses so that uh, we have a, a fair and just system where everybody's dignity is equal and not some people are more dignified than others just because they have money you know and the thing is is there are certain basic needs that we have like food and shelter you know and health care all these things should be provided for by the state which is raking in millions from uh, you know uh, taxes and uh, uh, and other resources 
uh, see, for example, you know, this year, this January, just a few days ago, uh, it was in the news that uh, uh, the U.S. government, you know, President Biden, he signed off uh, 777.7 billion dollars uh, for uh, 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 for the army, for the military uh, budget, and that's in a country where they still have homeless people, they still have uh, poor people, they still have. Uh, uh, a poor health service where it's all, you know, uh, insurance uh, backed rather than state backed. So in a country where all this is happening, they have enough money to allocate to uh, for fighting wars. America is not at war with anybody. There's no imminent war uh, going to happen. So, but still it's allocating this amount of money where it could be spending it on its people. It's not the lack of money that's doing these things. It's a lack of will and the lack of intent. Yes, and the, the more they, they put that kind of budget in the military uh, apparatus, the more people will be motivated to fight war because someone has to use that. The more you use the equipment, the more they will need to replenish. Exactly, exactly. In Christianity, especially Catholic, you know, we do not have like a stated pilgrimage. You know, although some people do go to Vatican, but there's no like a ceremonial element to it and uh, but in islam most people like to go to mecca and uh, you know i was wondering what is the context of this pilgrimage uh, with regards to quran and uh, yeah can you elaborate on this please okay uh, see the word hajj is another word like zakah which has been very badly misinterpreted now uh the the right of pilgrimage uh according to the Quran, is one of the most damaging ideas in religion. For a journey to a supposed holy place, millions of people gather to perform a trite ritual with a single egotistical aim of attaining salvation only for themselves. Many hope to die there, as hundreds of pilgrims do each year, in a hope of martyrdom and a first-class ticket to heaven. Nothing could be more selfish than that. There are two types of pilgrimage according to the Sunni religion. Uh, the greater known as the Hajj, following Ramadan, and the lesser known as the Umrah, which can be performed at any time of the year. These add an estimated 9 billion a year to the Saudi GDP. That is about 20% of the Saudi Kingdom's non-oil GDP and 7% of the total GDP. Hajj alone contributes about 4.5 billion, and experts believe that revenue from pilgrimage will top 100 billion by 2022. But COVID might change this figure. <laughs> you know, the, what's happening just now. Because of this mis mistaken belief, the pilgrimage is decreed by God. People believe that God decreed this, but God did not do this. People consider it as an, as an act of ultimate piety and may use their life savings despite their poor living conditions. One year's income from pilgrimage trade al could alone change the lives of all the citizens in any one country each year. For example, in Bangladesh, which is a very, very poor country and is frequently devastated by floods, the poverty in some areas is unimaginable with dire living conditions, crude sanitation, no running water or electricity, truly a life of hell for these people. When God talks about uh, social welfare in the Quran, he means to balance society and close the gaps created by the disparity of poor distribution of wealth, not only locally, but also globally. That is why it says that people should spend their money on social welfare. Money spent on pilgrimage might satisfy 
a person's inner desire and gives them emotional comfort. But this is false hope because according to the Quran, it is the act of facing and overcoming life's real challenges that develop the self and not uh, such selfish acts of fulfilling uh, rituals in order to gain passage to heaven. In reality, uh, such rituals as pilgrimages are an economic exploitation of society. The money spent on pilgrimages and mosques can be better spent on building hospitals, schools, universities, libraries, community uh, health care, and so on. The countries that send the most pilgrimages are probably the ones that need these facilities the most. The Quran's concept uh, is to balance society, and that is why the concept of social welfare is important. Those in a position to do so are obliged to contribute from their income. The word the Quran uses to describe this expenditure is anfaq. This can be a portion of your money set aside for directly helping those in need and also a tax paid to the central government for the maintenance of a national welfare system. So to expend yourself and your money from what God has bestowed upon you and to uh, stamp out poverty, hunger and poor living standards is a challenge that you really need to undertake, not hajj, not pilgrimage. To stop slavery, dowry, oppression is what people should strive for. To fight against aggression and injustices around the world is the challenge people should stand up for. And now that would be taking a real challenge. And the word hajj actually means to confront something or to challenge something. So that is hajj according to the Quran, is to uh, overcome your challenges in life. Yeah, the, the financial element of uh, religion is what I've always been uh, speaking out against for a long time. And I've had intense debates, you know, with people, you know, especially my countrymen about this. And they will, they will tell me, oh, you know, if this pastor has like five private debts, you know, what's wrong with that? You know, is there's uh, having prosperity is not a bad yeah. thing. You know, God didn't say you should be poor, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, sorry to cut in, but I was going to say that, you know, people believe that, that it's not a bad thing to be rich. No, nobody's saying that. What, what, uh, what price is happiness? What, how can you be happy if people around you are living in dire poverty? You know, and how is that happiness achieved? If it's achieved by wrongful means, is that really happiness then? Is that how we, uh, people perceive happiness to be? What God is saying that we need some balance in it. There's, uh, nobody's saying that you should give all your wealth away uh, and you should live a, a, a life of destitute. No, that's not the case. You, what we're saying is that people should have at least basic needs, you know, which is housing, health care, food, or shelter, all these kind of things, you know. And uh, for people to be rich is fine. If they want a good car, fine. If they want a better house, fine. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Yes, as I'll give you an example. You know, uh, uh, there's a there's a pastor in Nigeria of a big church. Now I think he's w almost reaching the Guinness Book of World Record of having a church that will accommodate up to one million people. So oh, this right. this church is is the overseer of this church. It's almost they run churches in Nigeria like a franchise. All these churches are in Nigeria, they're in UK, America, you know, okay. are around the world. And one of the pastors, one of the junior pastors for this overseer was fired and it was fired because he's not bringing in enough money all right <laughs> so, all right. so, so he was not a good salesman it was not reaching the target in terms of motivating the congregation to bring in tight or you know uh, having okay. their skills and not really 
how many souls he has saved, how many people come to yeah. church because it's the last, yeah. you know, I believe in God, even though I criticize religion, I believe in God because there are certain moments in my life where within the confines of my ho home, I will kneel down and pray to God and that will be my last solace, yeah. you know, my last hope, you know, to console me okay. at, that, at those moments. And that's the, the point of uh, religion, you know, but there's always a financial element that is revolving around this, which uh, gets me angry. So that man was fired, the pastor was fired, and the house, uh, the flat that the church gave him was taken back from him. And the man was having an interview and his family, you know, is stranded. So what kind of church is this? What kind of religion is this? What kind of God are we, are we worshiping? And I always wow. say, just one second, please. I always say that, um, like what you said, I'm not opposed to people having money or having private jets. But for yeah. me, any pastor that has two, three private jets is no longer a man of God. Because even Jesus Christ in his days, I always say this and people will laugh, in his days has was going around on donkey. Maybe horses yeah. were the you know uh, uh, Lamborghini or Ferrari of those days, but he wasn't using horses instead. He was chasing away <laughs> traders from the churches. So what they are doing now is what, what gets me angry, especially from a Nigerian context. Uh, please, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Th this is just, uh, you know, going back to what we said about uh, the churches being decked with gold and silver, mosques being decked with gold and silver, you know. Uh, I was watching a program on TV just the other day. Uh, it was about the Golden Temple in Amritsar, you know, the, the Sikh. Now, the, the Golden Temple is real gold, you know. Uh, there's so much gold on this place that's unimaginable, you know, how much it might be worth. Uh, so, I, and, but this is in, an, in a world where there's so much poverty. There's so, children are dying of, uh, because they don't have health care, because they don't have food, basic things like that, you know. And then we talk about, uh, uh, you know, loving God. How can we say we love God when we have so much uh, uh, circ poor circumstances around us all the time? Yes, and uh, so I just wanted to go back to the Quran a little bit. And the, the original text of Quran is in Arabic. You know, however, you know, something I've learned from your book is that there has been some form of divergence or some form of uh, disparity between the spoken Arabic and the Arabic in the Quran. I just wanted you to talk a little bit about, about this. Well, okay, well, looking back into history, you know, people will see that uh, the spoken Arabic and the Arabic in the Quran has moved along parallel routes. The Arabic that is spoken today is a result of uh, many changes that have shaped the language uh, through its evolution. The vernacular we hear today in the Middle East bears little resemblance, not least in structure and vocabulary to the common Arabic of yesteryear. In the case of uh, spoken Arabic, it transmuted it into a concept language, but there is nothing wrong in this because this is how living languages naturally evolve and develop as they are and you know, enriched by culture. So, however, such a progress would be detrimental to a language that seeks to disseminate absolute principles of moral and ethical standards. This is why the Arabic of the Quran has remained static and encapsulated to retain its essential purity. This means that the rules and the vocabulary too are living in their original form. This durability has ensured that the message is received intact and without change. The, reality, the reliability maintains uh, the Quran's precision and decisiveness. The Quran imparts universal permanent values and absolute laws. So, um, so to possess these qualities is crucial. Otherwise, it would not be this precise and dependable message that it is. 
it is not um, is it not strange that it appears easy to understand the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, but not the Quran. In fact, the Arabic in the Quran, which is very modern scripture by comparison, is much easier to decode than the pictograms of ancient Egypt. When decoding the hieroglyphics, there is no supplementary text used to understand it. So why can this method not be used to understand the Quran as well? Uh, when we do use uh, the Quran's own rules and text to understand it, the meaning of the Quranic words becomes consistent, resulting in accurate and clear interpretation. However, using the spurious hadith, and I, we can go on to the hadith later on, to explain uh, 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 the Quran has impressed certain misleading meanings for many words, and, and this has made the Quran apparently a difficult and confusing book that no longer can be seen as a guidance for mankind that it's meant to be. In order to establish the true message of the Quran, it's necessary to uncover and use its unchanging system, which stands firm on the root letters. It has these to fortify its foundation and validate its veracity. The root system of the Arabic language is, is an unfamiliar concept to many people. Even many scholars don't seem to grasp this essential fact of how Arabic words are constructed. This is one of the reasons why the Quran is often poorly translated. In Arabic, all words are made from a few component letters, commonly called a root. A root usually consists of three, sometimes two or four, which define the meaning of all the words from, from that root. By adding various vowels uh, to change the pronunciation as affixes, associated meanings can be derived. For example, the Arabic letter SLM from, uh, from the root words for salam, which means peace or harmony. Um, and by conforming and submitting to a, a, a social order. Islam, which is made from the same SLM, is a state of harmony. And the word Muslim, which is from the same root, SLM, uh, you know, it means somebody who acts in harmony and conforms to these laws. So you will see from this one root of SLM, we get three words which don't look the same, but they are from the same root, you know, which is Salam, Islam, and Muslim. Arabic words are therefore made by using uh, word elements such as a prefix, uh, which is uh, in, uh, in front of a word, an infix, which is inside a word, and a suffix, which is at the end of the word. Uh, so these are attached, attached to the base uh, root, and then the rest of the words can be made. So in a, in a root language, and the derivatives of that word mean that um, they are built from other words. So all words are built from different words. These are words are called roots. Now, while many languages, like the English language, for example, is a concept-based language, uh, there are some words that can be likened to the root system. For example, if we learn that the word obligation uh, means that you should have no problem knowing what the word obligate or oblige means because they're from the same root. Uh, so you use the same root to understand that the word is built from that root. Also, loan words from other languages that are root-based can show how this works. If you learn that the Greek root word chronos, in English it's chronic, means time, then you should have no problem realizing that chronicle and synchronized are made from this uh, root as well. You can use a root of chronos to realize that chronicle and synchronized are, uh, mean something to do with time as well. So the important point to understand here is that the essential meaning does not change. One root can have many different words but the essence of the meaning stays the same. Classical Arabic, as used in the Quran, as one of the most primitive Semitic Arabic, as used in the Quran, is one of the, uh, it has words get the meaning from the root they are built from, 
rather than by associating a concept with the, with the word, as you would in a concept language. This gives Quranic Arabic a crystal clear aspect to it. There is no ambiguity or confusion in classical Arabic sentences. The language is one of clarity, directness, and certainty, qualities that are hard to achieve in other languages. This means that the same word or derivatives from the same root cannot have different meanings. The essence of the word and the means always re remain secure to the same root. The Arabic in the Quran is clear and precise language. It is highly developed instrument of communication that allows it to uh, exp uh, exp express its importance concept with high level of accuracy. This is, you know, is going back to what we were talking about last time when we we're saying that uh, can the Quran be interpreted in different ways and what's interpretation of the Quran? It's because of this uh, uh, precise rule that you cannot interpret it uh, Arabic in different ways. This rule of the root words. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Wow. So, but I was wondering, so th there's a possibility that most imams, all those uh, clerics might not be aware of this, to this depth. Well, if they are aware of it, they don't want other people to be aware of it. Because what would happen is if they started using this and other people knew about this, then the traditional translation would fall apart because they're based on the basis that one word can have two, three, or six, or half a dozen, or a dozen different meanings. You know, so if one word in the Quran occurs several times, like the word zakah, in the traditional translations is translated as charity some places and as purity in some places. So they're saying that this word has two different meanings where it can't have that according to the root word. Wow. You see that? Yes. So yes. If, we, if they use this uh, rule, then that word charity could not be translated uh, sorry, the root zakat could not be translated as charity. It would have to be translated as pure everywhere. You wrote in your book about self-reference, you know, your book, uh, Quran, God's mm -hmm. Message to Mankind, about self-reference. And I would like you to elaborate on this, please. First of all, we're all familiar with barcodes. We all know, we all see barcodes. We see them everywhere. Uh, and when we go shopping on products, on packaging, on books, other materials, documents, everything, we see barcodes everywhere. Now, the thing is, is uh, when I first started publishing in the 80s, in the mid 80s, uh, you know, uh, we had to apply for what we call an ISBN number, you know, which is International Standard Book Numbering System, right? So in those days, we would only get one number and any following subsequent numbers, we had to work out ourselves. And there was instructions on how to do this. And if you look at the barcode, you will see on the right hand side, there's a standalone number. There's one number, the standalone number. Uh, now, once we had made up the number, and when we put the last number in, that would tell us whether the rest of the numbers were correct or not. That was called the check digit. And it would tell us if all the other numbers that were to the left of that number were correct or not. So we used, uh, and, and there was that's the system that we used. And even today, it's true, although when you apply for numbers, they'll give you a whole a raft of numbers, what you buy, but they won't explain to you how it's done. They used to do that before. So if you look at that, we can see that in the barcode, there's a check digit, there's a self-reference that tells you whether everything else is correct or not. And that applies to the Quran as well. And the way it applies is this, okay? So the, uh, there are sentences, words in the Quran, which tell you if the structure of the Quran is correct or not, if the whole structure is correct or not. If you were to take these sentences or these words 
out or change them in any way, then the structure would fall apart as well. That's why it's called self-reference. So it's, it's, it's basically, technically you can call it self-reference, but it's all it is is a, is a, uh, is a check digit, check words or check sentences. And the way it works is this. Uh, when we say a word, uh, we can either say that what the word uh, is the mention of words or the use of words. Because if you have a paragraph, you can say that the word is mentioned so many times in uh, the paragraph, or you can say the use of words is this. Let me explain this a little bit further. So self-reference takes into consideration the use and the mention of words. When you use a word, it's the meaning of the word that is implied. When you mention a word, you're talking about the word and not its meaning. Every sentence can thus talk about words it is using or the meaning of the word. As an example of mentioning the words, if I say youth comes before manhood, it would be logically incorrect unless specified. The reason being that uh, in a dictionary, manhood, the word and not the meaning, comes before youth. The word, you see that now? So since the Quran talks about numerous things and uses many words, often repeating them many, many times, if the author of the Quran was a man or a group of men, uh, we should have lots of opportunities to find such logical errors uh, of self-reference in the book. However, we discover something amazing when we apply the self-reference check. Okay, for example, <clears throat> if we could, I'm going to use a, a, a Christian missionary's uh, uh, example now. Uh, if we say there is a mistake in the Bible to Billy Graham, for example, you know, the famous uh, Bible thumper, yeah. for example, uh, you know, he may respond, no, there's no mistake in the Bible. Show me a mistake. Uh, uh, you know, a mistake could logically be shown by reading a passage like David made a mistake. The word mistake is in the Bible. Right? Now, if the Bible were to say there is no mistake in this book, it could be falsified or disproved logically by that first example. It's not a trick. It involves delicate matters of logic. However, safely for now, the Bible never makes such a claim, but the Quran does. Uh, okay. Yeah. So what the Quran says is, why do they not study and consider the Quran with care? If it were from any other than God, they would have found in it many contradictions. That's what the Quran is saying. The Quran is saying that if the Quran was not from God, then they would find lots of contradictions in it. So that's a clear statement. Uh, the, the meaning of the statement, use of words is clear, considering the nature of the book and its diverse topics and areas of discussion. If the book had a human origin, it would be easy to find discrepancies in it. Uh, if we consider the mention of the words, a different picture emerges we can see if the word passes its own falsification test. For example, uh, I, I might, uh, uh, I have to explain this a little bit further. See, uh, I think uh, a lot of the work uh, for this is done by another guy. I didn't actually do the counting, you know, for this. Uh, I used the references which I found in a book uh, called uh, Al-Mojim Al-Murfahis. This is by a guy called Fad Abdelbaki. He did all the, uh, the uh, legwork in this instance. And uh, for example, you know, uh, the Quran is saying that the evil Al-Khabis and the good uh, are not alike. Now, in most of the verses, the Quran is saying, for example, Jesus is like Adam. 
And when it says Jesus is like Adam, not only does it mention Jesus 25 times, it mentions the Quran, sorry, Adam 25 times as well. So not only is Adam and Jesus similar in other nature, but they are also similar in the fact that they both mentioned twice, 25 times in the Quran. Now, then it says that the blind and the seeing are not alike. So it doesn't, uh, so if it had the blind eight times and the seeing eight times, then they would be alike. But that's not what the Quran does. The Quran says, mentions blind eight times and seeing nine times. So not are the blind and the seeing not alike in many other ways, but they're not even alike in the way that they're mentioned in the Quran. One is mentioned eight times and one is mentioned nine times. Right? So then it says that uh, uh, it goes on. And if you start uh, counting the word uh, evil and the word good, for example, the evil is mentioned 16 times and the good is mentioned seven, uh, seven times. It says that the word evil is mentioned seven and the word good is mentioned, uh, uh, sorry, uh, the uh, word evil is mentioned 16 times, the good is mentioned 17 times. So according to the trend, the negative evil should be less than the positive. If you go by the logic of what the Quran is saying, then you should say that the evil should be less uh, than the positive, you know, uh, than the good. How come the evil is more than what it should be? Uh, has the Quran failed? If we cut off the statement in the middle of the sentence, uh, the verse needs, but the verse needs to be read in full. Proclaim the evil and the good are not alike. Even if the abundance of evil amazes you, you shall fulfill your duty to God, uh, uh, those who possess intelligence and understand that you may succeed. So the thing is this, if we are careful, uh, just as uh, I mentioned the above statement, we notice that God's joined together all the evils, the evil, our evil, all the evils in the Quran are heaped together. And he says that even if you heap the evils together and you're amazed and impressed by the evil, it's still not better than the good. No matter how much evil you see, we see that in our life all around us. We see that uh, uh, so much evil around and not enough good around. So even if we're drawn to the evil and we're amazed by the evil, it's still not better than the, the good. Good is still worth far more than the evil. And that's what this really means. So this shows uh, that the Quran is quite unique in that respect, the, the self-reference and the way that it shows the self-reference to be. But it takes a bit of uh, time and thought you know, to do all this work uh, to get to the root of it, you know. So, okay. but but a man, how could a man or a group of men have produced such a mathematical and logically sound book without having any formal education in logic, mathematics, and no computer software and no indexes or any description at all? You know, remember the Quran was revealed over a period of twenty-three years. So, if you started writing something in year one and in year seven, would you remember what you wrote back in uh, year one or what you're going to write in uh, year twenty? You know. No. That wouldn't be possible. I've always wanted to ask this, and the same with Bible as well. Who, who wrote the Quran? Do we know uh, who wrote this ho uh, holy book? Well, well, Muslims believe that the Quran is God's word verbatim. Now, other people might not share this view, but the fact that uh, uh, it's one of the most widely uh, read books in the world and it's uh, uh, influenced lots of people, it's worth, re uh, worth a read. So uh, detractors of Islam might say, oh, Muhammad wrote it. But as I've explained to you, a man in a desert 
could not have compiled this simply for the reason of the way it's, it's structured. The purity of the language, the structure of the language, the self-reference system, the, uh, the scientific facts. There are so many things that if brought together, it makes it impossible for one single man to have written it. And the thing is, all this information would have been, should have been available at that time for it to have been written. So some of the things that were uh, information uh, people didn't uh, know or weren't aware of. So how could they have done it without a computer, without an index system, uh, without the libraries, without the, uh, you know, Google, you know, uh, no Google to search for it in those days. So how did they do it? So for Muslims, it's uh, it's a book which is revealed by God. He is the author of the book. And uh, 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 and there are different reasons why, you know, uh, we can understand that. Because uh, the way the Quran, uh, for example, is uh, it talks about holistic things, not about individual single uh, subject things. So, and then it connects all these things together, you know, personal life, social life. It talks about hard periods, war, peace, all these kind of things. And there isn't a book that talks about all these things together in such a way as the Quran does. Hmm. Wow, that's uh, that's in interesting. So there's a level of divine intervention in the or divine manifestation in that book. Exactly, exactly. Yes. Well, what I would say that uh, 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 there are a lot of people who may not have read the Quran, but they have very good qualities. They're exemplary characteristics. But reading the Quran uh, would uh, uh, calibrate their values, and it would impress the divine blueprint on them because it's the original you know although they may be good in character but to align themselves with the quran would add another layer of veracity to their belief you contemplated in your book you know whether quran has failed in its uh, presentation or portrayal of the good versus evil i think you mentioned you've touched on this a little bit about the number of good versus evil you know how it was mentioned and how the overall good will never be more, you know, better than, well, how the overall evil will never be better than good, no matter how, the quantity of it. And you distilled uh, this, you, you, you touched this, but if you want to add a little bit more, uh, you can add, you know, about whether the Quran uh, has failed. Well, all I would say is that, you know, um, the Quran is distilling the truth, this distilling the values. You know, the Quran's values are uh, permanent values, not transient values. Because the thing is, that as, as human beings, as societies, we all have values of one type or another. But the thing is this, our values can be transient because uh, they may apply to us, but they don't necessarily apply to everybody else. Whereas the Quran's values do apply to individuals and societies altogether. And that's the difference, you know, uh, in the Quranic values as compared to the values which individuals might have. Okay, so um, the... You talked about how Islam or Quran can give someone a structure or value because even if the person is a good person, if they read the Quran or, you know, it will give them some level of guidance or calibration in their life to help, you know, better them. And that baffles me when I hear about Sharia law in okay. Islam. You know, and this is something that has been bugging me, I'm saying, you know, because for me as a non-Muslim, what I see is that are you really fighting for your God? You know, your God is supposed to be omnipotent, powerful God. Why can't the God choose to uh, dispense punishment if 
he or she so shooters. But why do you <laughs> fight? Because whenever I hear Serelo, I hear, you know, hanging people, chopping off people's hand, you know, especially in the north of Nigeria. Can you talk about what's your views on, on Sharia law? Okay. Well, um, I've just, this month, uh, I have a, a, a publication which is called Sharia. Is it fit for Britain? So uh, I'll be happy to send you that book at some point. But Please, the yeah. thing is, is, usually Sharia or Sharia law, as it's commonly known, comes to our attention when there's a beheading of a prisoner in Saudi Arabia, the stoning to death of a woman somewhere in the Middle East, or the caning of an offender in Indonesia that is reported in the media. But Sharia is, in fact, much more than this. The practice of Sharia, the un-Quranic Sharia, exposes an interesting conflict that cannot be reconciled without people abandoning their deep-held belief in religious faith that has developed outside the Quran. So uh, for many people who profess to be Muslims, Sharia is a, a reference point uh, in all aspects of their life. However, the draconian laws imposed by the imams in the name of Sharia are in conflict with the Sharia mentioned in the Quran, as recognized by the Quran-centric reformers who see the un-Quranic Sharia for what it really is, a means of control and oppression of people who do not know the Quran. The Sharia in the Quran is very different to the Sharia that is now wrongly considered to be Islam's legal system and is in reality derived from Hadith, the deeds and sayings attributed to Muhammad that actually compiled some 200 years after his death. Now, uh, Sharia dictates not only harsh punishment, but also rules and many personal and public aspects of life, such as prayer, fasting, charity, business, personal relationships, finance, dress, food, art, personal hygiene, and so on and on. Uh, Sharia can inform every aspect of a person's life. It has been made into a complete structure and one that many sincere but ill-informed people find difficult to avoid. The general rule of uh, do not forbid what God has not is set aside, and the need for Sharia compliance and certification has been created to such an extent that it generates a vast amount of cash. It is predicted that it will produce 9 trillion economy by the year 2025, just by making products and services that used to be halal uh, could be sorry, that, that uh, products halal that could previously be consumed without any official qualification. So now we will have a host of things that these Sharia councils have made halal, but which were halal before anyway. So they've done this in order to give the certification and to make money. The Quran strictly forbids the taking of authorities as equal to God. So if God has made something halal, nobody else needs to make it halal or haram. You know, um, This principle is violated when people follow decrees of their imams that clearly conflict with the Quran, which is God's word. For Sunnis, there are four Imams, the Hanbali, the Malaiki, the Shafi, the Hanfi, to decrees for them trends of the faith. Since these Imams have long passed away, they now refer to more recent successes for the guidance. The Shias have their own group of Imams which they follow. So what kind of guidance do people look for? A person wondering what to do if their colleague invites them to an office get together after work may turn to a Sharia scholar for advice to ensure they act within the Sharia code and its limiters known as hadood or had. It is these jurists who issue guidance and rulings. Any guidance that is considered a formal legal ruling is called a fatwa. That's the kind of fatwa which we're talking about earlier on. The unfortunate thing is that often this guidance has no basis in the Quran. The Quran mentions Sharia five times, but this is in relation to the decrees of God. 
Sharia means decree, directive, or law of God. The word has been shamelessly hijacked by those who wish to control and manipulate a large ignorant population by not only threatening them with fire and brimstone, but also harsh, harsh punishments in this life. We can see that these threats and punishments are actually carried out. The stoning of women who have been accused of adultery as a prime example. Is it any wonder that in recent years, some Western analysts have identified Sharia religious law as a growing threat? These analysts say that any adoption of Sharia's tenets is a tragic, is a strategic extremists are using to transform their countries into Islamic states. It's true that many religious activists are seeking to instill Sharia laws into British and the European legal system or to get some recognition and a legitimacy. So we must now ask if the Sharia is fit for modern Europe. So unquestionably, Sharia law conflicts with the Quran will be detrimental to any civilized society. And we must oppose this. But to do that, effectively, we need to understand what Sharia law from the Quran really means. So we've got to understand the Quran, first of all, what the Sharia in the Quran says. These are God's laws and what the Sharia that's been hijacked and made into a different law about the punishments that you were talking about earlier on. These uh, are the ones that we have to reject. So, in other words, Sharia law, is it regarded as a law in Quran? Is it that word specifically law? Is it a law in no, Quran? No, not in the Quran. There, 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 in the Quran, there is no Sharia law, but uh, in tradition, there is Sharia law. Okay. okay. And these are the ones which are uh, used by the priests to give, hand out the punishments that uh, we're talking about earlier for adultery, for theft for you know uh, uh, other things like that as well okay uh, like the hand chopping and see can i can i just make another point about this about the hand chopping as well uh, there is no hand chopping in the quran what the quran is talking about is a is a metaphor uh when it says that uh, 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 it's just like if uh, if i said asked you to do something you say oh no no i'm tied today i can't do this that doesn't mean to say that somebody's bound you in a chair and you can't move it just means that you're not able to do it because you've got other things to do so the, uh, in the Quran, it's about the uh, severing, not severing of the hand, but the uh, cutting of the resources of a person so that they don't have the ability to commit any crime. That's what it means. Wow. Not the chopping of the hand. That's been changed by the Hadith into the chopping of the hands, not uh, according to the Quran. So this is like the, the interpretation is very literal instead of the exactly. you know, going yeah. deeper. <laughs> exactly. They've literally interpreted instead of the metaphor it uses. It's okay. about saying that, uh, you know, cut off the resources of this person. If a person is stealing, cut off their resources so they cannot do uh, such harm. Okay. So in your explanation of this, uh, I'll go on a little tangent. You mentioned halal and haram. I just wanted you to, for a non-Muslim, because... Whenever, if I want to go and buy meat, I always buy the halal because my understanding is like it's fresh and it's not like, you know, it's somewhat uh, cleaner meat. But what is it in terms of Islam? The the halal, what the certification, it says something about certification. And... No, no, no. Uh, see, see the word halal uh, from the Quran. All it means is permitted. That's all it means. Wow, if, okay. If, if, if God is permitting something for you, he says, this is halal. Or if it's not, if it's forbidding something, we say, this is haram. Okay. okay. Haram means forbidden. Halal means forbidden. So the Quran is only forbidding, you know, a very few things actually, you know, in food, hardly anything. In. And uh, people are taking the word uh, halal to be a ritual slaughter. That's not what it means. There is no ritual slaughter in the Quran. There is none at all. 
you know, what they're saying is that in order for an animal to be halal, it has to be slaughtered in a particular way and a prayer has to be said. But it's impossible to do that, impossible to check that. That's not what the Quran is saying. It's just saying that, let's say, for example, in the Quran it's saying that, uh, that the kind of food which is forbidden is animals that die of themselves. That's obvious because animals that die of themselves could be uh, could have died of disease. So you don't want to be eating the disease anymore. Uh, animal uh, running blood because to uh, blood is detrimental when you're eating it. You know, uh, if you make something out of it. And the other thing which is forbidden is the meat of a pig. Now uh, people get confused with it. They think that meat of a pig is forbidden because pig is a dirty animal. Pig is not a dirty animal. Pig is a, an okay animal, but the reason why it's forbidden is because of its closeness in genetics to human beings. You know, if you go to South Pacific, you will see people who eat, uh, who are cannibals, and they eat pig as well. They say that human meat tastes like pig. Wow. Very like pig. And you know, they call human beings long pig. They call human beings long pig in South Pacific. And not only that, did you know last week there was a human heart transplanted from a pig to uh, a human being. The only reason why they could do it is because a pig's uh, uh, part will not be rejected by uh, a human being. Okay. It's so close, it will not be rejected. So to eat a, a pig, it would be like cannibalism, you know, almost. <laughs> Wow. Okay, now I understand because uh, I used to think is because of the dirtiness and close, you know, close to the mud. How dirty it is, but now it's much no, clearer. It's, not, it's a very clean animal, in fact. You know, so, uh, but but the reason why is because it's it's very very close genetically to human beings. Okay. Wow. That's good to to understand this. Okay. <laughs> so, so you know, and and people are saying, you know, uh, they, uh, now we have in in Europe and Australia and many countries we've got. Uh, halal councils who issue out certificates to uh, businesses who want to sell halal products and uh, you know whether it's halal or not it's not only for food but this is also for banking for art for candles for clothing for different things you know it's, it's a mix and nonsense of the thing the principle is if god hasn't forbidden don't let anybody else do that for you uh, yes 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 so I just wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, hatred of uh, non-Muslims. You know, for example, in Nigeria, there's always hatred of non-Muslims, especially in the north. You know, there's a lot of mm -hmm. killing of Christians and, and things like that and other people. And uh, yeah. this has resulted in the killing of, you know, several Christians, even non-Muslims that are not Christians or people that don't really believe in anything. And obviously there are a set of ideologies that Islam's uh believing that will prompt this. But can you talk about this, you know, what is fueling this hatred? Okay, okay. Well, well, it's not the Quran that's fueling the hatred. It's the people that are fueling this hatred. Uh, as a society grows, uh, you know, diverse, bringing different cultures and traditions into the mix, as well as alien beliefs, uh, is a natural consequence that some fear and suspicion arises. However, people, even from diverse cultures and beliefs, are not that different. We all need the same things to live in peace and security. And that means some same core values and ethical standards. So when religion removes its dress codes and rites and rituals, uh, it must rely on universal permanent values. And it is these enduring principles of uh, life that uh, uh, bring people together. So individuals are ultimately defined by their conduct, not by their dress, not by their diet, not by their rituals, customs, or traditions. 
So common values remove barriers and bring people together, whatever their background. If people are good, then it follows that society will also be good. A fractured society is a breeding ground for nefarious elements who create nothing but fear and turmoil. This is why religion, racism, nationalism are repugnant as ideas of superiority. It's extremism of all descriptions that is detrimental. And it is incumbent upon intelligent people to confront and refute and oppose all this, these regressive narratives before they totally destroy our harmony. A community that continually sees fear and turmoil and does nothing to alleviate the causes is at odds with its claim that it truly wants to create a cohesive society. So to ensure peace and security, just as we all need the same nutrients and the same air, we all need the same permanent values. And, and these are found in the Quran. This means that we have to challenge uh, interpretations which are wrong and we have to implement the, uh, the universal values properly. I mean, in Christianity, you know, a lot of people can criticize, uh, you know, um, the Pope or Vatican. Everybody in Islam, it's quite difficult to criticize the religion because, you know, it, it, it's quite, uh, people, is that it could be detrimental to your own life, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, and we, we've seen these examples in uh, uh, in France, for example, last year. And even in this country, uh, we've seen examples of people being killed because of uh, religious difference and religious intolerance. And But that's not what the Quran is saying. The Quran is giving you universal values to bring people together. And that doesn't depend on their culture or their color or their race or whatever. Nothing to do with that. What we're saying is this. These are differences that people have made themselves. It's nothing to do with the Quran. The Quran is not inciting hatred at all. Yeah, so uh, I will ask you the million dollar question now. <laughs> you know, uh, like most people will criticize the religion, whether Islam or Christianity, in the sense that, you know, there's a lot of uh, war that's associated with religion, Islam or Christianity, you know. And uh, so the question is, like, is it possible that religion or Islam can unite humanity? Is this possible? Well, well, without unity, there can be no peace. That's for sure. So divisions based on religion, tribalism, nationalism, racism, and anything that caused as uh, you know, egregious maleficence must be reconciled. So in the absence of a universal way of life, humankind must remain divided into mutually hostile groups. Under such conditions, there can be no enduring peace, no permanent security for the individual, and no shared and lasting prosperity and happiness in the world. So the Quran, for this reason, uh, constantly draws attention to the uni uh, unity of humanity. The Quran destroys the notion of superiority based on religion, nationality, or race, and clearly states that the best among you are the foremost in good conduct. So the Quran places good conduct above everything else. So it, it's good conduct uh, based on universal values that makes just and balanced society. This means for total peace and security, individuals must need to become benefactors of humanity. The Quran is a message that has meaning for individuals, but also it's got a far richer meaning for each person as a member of the global community. In the Quran, people are who are foremost in good conduct and accept universal values are addressed as believers and not as Muslims, because Muslim is not a title, but a description of someone whose principles are founded on permanent values. So this is why taking Islam as a religion means that its fundamental position as a socioeconomic model has not been understood. 
So Quran is not about religion. It's not about the superiority of, of culture or ri rituals of any description. It's about values. And it's universal values which the Quran is drawing people to come uh, towards so that everybody is on equal footing for as far as justice and good conduct is concerned. So in other words, people to to facilitate that unity and the unification of humanity is for Christians to actually look at the values that the Bible portrays and for Muslims to actually look at the values that the Quran exactly, exactly, portrays. Exactly. Can, I, can I explain this to you in a different way? Yes. Uh, let's put it this way. You know, people in Nigeria, in China, in America, in Europe, we're all eating different kinds of foods. But we need the same kind of nutrition. We need the same nutrition. If you are in Nigeria eating whatever you know local food there is, and I'm in uh, India eating whatever local food it is, it doesn't matter what food you're eating. It doesn't matter what food I'm eating. We need the same nutrition from the, the different foods. So it doesn't matter whatever our cultures are, uh, whatever we subscribe to, whether you're a Christian, Hindu, Buddhist, Sunni, Shia, whatever, you need the same values for truth and justice. You need the same values for peace and security. So we must discard our religious culture. We must discard our religious rituals, and we must uh, take upon uh, ourselves the, uh, uh, the uh, universal values. That's what the Quran is saying. And that's what will bring us together, nothing else. Okay. So we've come to the uh, end of the interview, but I was wondering, is there anything else you would like to add with regards to to Islam, with regards to the Quran, and with regards to the interpretation of this uh, holy book? Is there anything you would like to add to this? Well, just to say that, you know, the, the biggest setback for Muslims is that they don't understand the Quran the way it should be understood. So this is a really sad thing, you know. Uh, uh, as you know, Muslims are also divided into different uh, sects. And the reason for this is simply because uh, whatever culture they have, whatever understanding they have or the interpretation they have, that's what they're using for their understanding. But it's making them divide. So if anything is making people divide, we know there's something wrong then. If something is bringing people together, we know that's uh, something right. And, uh, and I just reiterate, it's the values that we need to come together uh, uh, through, not not through rituals, not through culture. Not, we can have our own culture. There's no harm in that. You know, uh, There's nothing wrong with Indian culture or uh, Polish culture or, you know, uh, or Middle Eastern culture. That's okay. But the values we have must be the same because we need to give each other the same respect that we want ourselves as well in order uh, to get the justice that we need. Mr. Pangam Mustafa, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me on your, your program. Thank you.